I am looking at a figure. I think it's made of wood. It's very tall and narrow and abstract. It looks like a plaster, sort of. So a giant, elongated, uh, handmade candelabra. It's a white pillar with parts cut out that make it more rounded. It's about five inches wide and five feet tall. And it's white with blue accents in the middle and then some stripes down the bottom. It kind of looks like a dress to me because of the top and then the skirt with stripes going downwards. Um, And kind of curves in like a traditionally female's body and waist. Hourglass, yeah. Soft, uh, seems feminine to me, the top part anyway. I have walked by it a lot, Mm -hmm. but I've never really stopped to think about what it means. Mm -hmm. Feels kind of haunting to me a little bit, but (laughs) Uh, I can't quite tell what the figure is. Mm, Seems kind of eerie in a way. If it is a person, if I'm correct that it's a figure, it's kind of shut down and shut in. Um, There's not expression. Um, The top part, which could be a face, is sort of a triangular thing with a line cut through it. In all honesty, it reminds me kind of like an alien or robot because like the the head is triangle shaped, but then it has a body-like form, but it's not really humanoid. A Chrysler build, the Chrysler building with a fruit bowl on top. <laughs> it looks like it's maybe a mop, but just without the six Euclid It's kind of evocative. I feel like it, it evokes sort of a deeper feeling, gives you that opportunity. A lot of these pieces where you can't quite tell what it is, so you can read into it whatever you're feeling or whatever you want to try to get out of it maybe emptiness and sterility almost, and yet with vaguely happy colors. Hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe still, it's kind of a still feeling, right? Like sit in stillness and contemplate and think and cope. In its abstraction, the fact that, I, that it still looks like a figure and possibly a female figure, and just even the, the elongated figurativeness of it um, draws me to it because it's unusual and I enjoy things that don't give you all the answers. From the Lonely Palette Podcast, in partnership with the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, this is Women Take the Floor, a podcast series where we will be looking at a different object from the exhibition the first Sunday of each week of Women's History Month. I'm your host, Tamar Avishai. Join me as I walk through the gallery, recording observations by anonymous visitors, and then invite you into the story of these artworks and the incredible women behind them. This week, Louise Bourgeois' Pillar from 1949. So here's a fun fact about me. I am deathly afraid of snakes. They are the worst. 
the worst. I don't even want to be thinking about them right now as I say this because it means that I am thinking about snakes and that's horrifying. But I'm going to push through to tell you a story. It's about the time I was a camp counselor and wrangling all my seven-year-olds in their level three swimming class in the part of the lake where you could touch the squishy ground, which was bad enough anyway, when a wee little water snake, minding its own business, slithered out from under the dock and moved across the smooth surface of the water as though it was on the ground. I, of course, did everything my amygdala made me do when confronted with a primal fear. My mouth got numb, my teeth tickled, my stomach sank like a stone, and I hightailed it the hell out of there, probably screaming, and definitely George Costanza style, splashing multiple children in my wake. Fortunately, I had a co-teacher to handle my campers, some equally freaked out and some freakishly nonplussed, and the moment passed without any further incident. But I took it with me for a while. It was one of the few times I can remember being so aware of how out of control I was, how my lizard brain blindly perceived something as a threat and made my body act accordingly. You know exactly the feeling I'm talking about, whether for you it's snakes or heights or rodents or blown up balloons if you're my friend Phoebe, or of course, spiders. This feeling is instantaneous and overwhelming and about as primal as it gets. And maybe you could say that it's the price we pay for having a body, the tax our body charges us for putting it in danger, real or imaginary. This innate physical response, this visceral sense that something in our own bodies is off kilter and out of our conscious control, this purely instinctual desire for self-protection. The realization that by just having a body, it means that you're at the mercy of what's around you and inside of you. And for most of human evolution, it was our brains alone manufacturing this feeling. But then, along came a spider. That is, along came the French-American artist Louise Bourgeois, who spent a lifetime of almost a century tapping into this uncomfortable and universal part of the human experience, making tangible this intangible feeling of disquiet. Her work is primal, psychologically charged, corporeal, repulsive, and moreover, stubbornly uncategorizable. She's been half adopted by multiple movements, a primitivist, surrealist expressionist with feminist rising, a sculptor who immigrated from France to the US during the 1930s and then died in 2010 at the age of 98, working practically up until the week of her death. And so you can imagine how different one object ends up looking from another when you've been an artist that long. And this is particularly true with bourgeois, whose drawings, prints, and sculptures have always spoken more intimately to each other than to a particular movement. Quote, a piece, she says, is always a consequence of the one that preceded it. It's a complete evolution, end quote. And though she maintains that there is indeed a through line in her work, it's emotional, not stylistic. But put a pin in that for now. 
This is all to say that you've probably seen a bourgeois but not realized it, at least not by name. Of course, if you do know her name, it's probably because of her series of spider sculptures. And if you know those, then you definitely know, because they're not easy to forget. Some are oversized, looming gracefully, almost protectively on large outdoor plazas. Others are small, daintily squatting on gallery walls. One in particular at Dia Beacon in Beacon, New York, occupies almost an entire small brick room, giving the jolting and horrifying effect that you've just stumbled into its lair. And while it's a gross oversimplification of her work to only associate her with these spider sculptures, and a clear example of the art world's need to turn a tremendously prolific artist into something recognizable and therefore sellable, if you're going to reduce bourgeois down to a single image, it actually makes sense that this is it. Spiders don't happen to be a primal fear of mine. I actually think they're kind of cute, although I know of many others, my husband included, who would disagree. But they get to something very authentic, even emblematic in her work. Because bourgeois, across the board, taps into that lizard brain. She makes your teeth tickle. Believe me when I say that walking into a gallery of her work is not a pleasant experience, and that we're actually getting off kind of easy with this relatively tame wooden pillar. You experience her art, both consciously and subconsciously, with your whole body. And this is because she understands that the very fact that we all live in bodies means that we're going to respond to this viscerally uncomfortable art in a certain way, all sharing a kind of primal repulsion and a primal familiarity. And this feeling of being simultaneously repelled and compelled is a tension that she then exacerbates with an almost grotesquely incongruous use of materials. We encounter biomorphic forms from her imagination that are both tactile and taboo, hanging, organ-like, sinewy, indefinable objects that you half expect to stink of rotting meat, but made out of industrial materials like wood, bronze, concrete that looks like fossils, latex that looks like skin. And that tension between hard and soft, between organic and inorganic, between inviting and kind of gross, becomes tremendously disconcerting, a perverse subversion of expectations. Imagine, for example, coming upon an organized, appealing row of smooth, hard, egg-like polished marble sculptures, only to realize that they are, upon closer inspection, the slack heads of penises. Imagine a sculpture where the breasts of a pregnant female body end in a blunt, headless, penis-like shaft, the breasts indistinguishable from testes, as we see in Fragile Goddess from 1970. Imagine a figure, also eerily headless, cast in smooth bronze that hangs from a thread, spider-like, in a graceful but disturbing backbend, in Arch of Hysteria from 1993. The artist Patty Chang perhaps put it best when she compared Bourgeois' work to a sea cucumber, a grotesque, inexplicable mix of animal and vegetable that breathes out of its anus, has sex organs near its mouth, and, more to the point, physically vomits its body inside out to scare away predators in, quote, a defiant and spectacular act of self-immolation. 
They offer themselves by emptying themselves, and yet they're continually regenerating. The performance of death makes them stronger. Okay, wow. I know this is a lot. But stay with me, because as gloriously visceral as these descriptions are, there's honestly no better metaphor for bourgeois' work. She herself described her art-making as an exorcism, specifically an exorcism of her own experiences. And while her work is far more elegant than a sea cucumber vomiting itself inside out, this idea of continually laying oneself bare with the goal of growing ever stronger and more resilient is Louise Bourgeois to a T. And so I want to return to this emotional through line that underpins her work, this past that she's continually trying to reconcile through her art. She was vocal throughout her career about how her underlying motivations as an artist originated in unresolved childhood traumas, writing that, quote, every day you have to abandon your past or accept it, and then if you cannot accept it, you become a sculptor, end quote. She describes her work as exploring the primordial sexual and emotional anxieties of childhood, and specifically her relationship with her parents, which was exacerbated by her father's infidelity. She's fascinated by the memory, both psychological and a kind of innate muscle memory, that is churned up by her biomorphic forms. Our deeply human impulses, fear, jealousy, vulnerability, loss of control, are made manifest in her sculptures of bodies, and as soon as we walk into a gallery of them, in ours too. Which brings us back to this deceptively simple wooden pillar from 1949. It might be hard to see how it has its place in this graphic narrative we've just unfolded, but remember two things. The first is that it's from relatively early in a career that, as we've just said, was defined by the evolution of objects, one to the next. So therefore, it's just a step in the road of what her work would evolve into. And secondly, we're looking at it as a single object in a museum collection. This sculpture was never meant to stand by itself. It was actually part of a group, a series of 80 or so wooden figures that Bourgeois completed between 1945 and 1955 that she called personages. And if we look at this one specifically, isolated, we see a tall, narrow pillar, anchored in thin metal, carved into balsa wood, painted white, and comprised of three distinct parts, a head, trunk, and long flouted skirt with three grooved sky blue lines down the center. And despite its name, pillar, which you would think evokes strength, sturdiness, support, it's hard not to see the gentle organic curves too. You could argue that we're looking at a softer, maybe more feminine version of the sturdy, uncompromising, and may we add phallic, form of a pillar. Or maybe it's just the opposite, that something as simple as a pillar, so architectural and blunt and inanimate, is granted a graceful figure, a body, and with it all the complexities of being human. 
I myself have a history of anthropomorphizing inanimate objects. I mean, I've named every car I've ever had. And so it's a comfort to know that this was very much bourgeois' intent, to infuse humanness into even the most inert forms. She talks about the personalities of geometric forms, first in how they communicate with her, for example, the anxiety she gets from spirals versus the tranquil safety of grids, and secondly, in how they communicate with each other. She describes her personages as a community, always hanging out, always mid-conversation. Quote, even though the shapes are abstract, she wrote, they represent people. They are delicate as relationships are delicate. They look at each other and they lean on each other, end quote. And so they stand facing each other, occupying the room like a skeletal cocktail party, inhabitants of a private world. But, and this is critical, it's a world that we're invited into. To this end, Bourgeois describes the experience of her art not as the contemplation of an object, but as an encounter. We're encouraged to move amongst these bodies with our own bodies. And in doing so, we begin to realize what the art historian Lucy Lippard means when she describes Bourgeois' work as, quote, exacting the physicality of the body as experienced from within. Here we are, welcomed into the physical space of these personages, into their corporeal conversations, and continually reminded that we, too, occupy spaces and bodies of our own, and that these bodies house guts and glory, feelings, emotions, associations, memories. And though Bourgeois' work is about her memories, her ongoing reconciliation, her vomiting sea cucumber, she is inviting us both to probe our own and also, crucially, to be aware that those bodies of ours are controlled by something that lives so deep beneath the surface that it defies awareness. There is, of course, another, more explicitly feminist interpretation of Bourgeois' work. One of the largest spider sculptures is entitled Maman, the informal French word for mother, and she's described it alluding to her own mother's strength, her protection, her nurture, and specifically her affinity for spinning and weaving. Both of her parents repaired tapestries by trade. And Pillar, too, has its multiple interpretations, from its resemblance to a weaving shuttle to, as we've said, its particularly feminine curves. Its most explicit feminist metaphor is the architectural structure that becomes a woman, a literal housewife. And you could argue that Pillar was carved as a response to Bourgeois' painting series from the mid-1940s, titled Femme Maison, or Housewife, where female bodies are given the heads of houses. Bourgeois described this series, which was the last of her paintings before she turned exclusively to sculpture, as identifying home as a female space, a place to probe identity, a place to hide, a place to be exposed. But looking at gender, or feminism, in her work only hammers home how overly simplistic it would be to use any single lens. There is no one way to define her work except as an evolution, 
an attempt at growth and acceptance tied together with the invisible threads of her own emotional experience. So maybe the best way to really understand Bourgeois is to hold her own work up against itself, to see this evolution in action. And we have a great example of this. I briefly mentioned Fragile Goddess earlier, that penis-breast-testes hybrid, an aggressive, psychosexual mishmash of genitals. It's a body that is simultaneously sexualized and repulsive, simultaneously creating new life and protecting its own. In other words, experiencing all of the most anxious moments of pregnancy. In the 1970s, when it was initially carved, Bourgeois wrote, quote, with fragile goddess, I try to give representation of a woman who is pregnant and tries to be frightening because she is frightened. She's frightened for the child she carries. She's frightened somebody is going to invade her privacy and she won't be able to defend what she's responsible for, end quote. But then in 2002, she revisited that sculpture. And this version of Fragile Goddess is a different piece of art entirely. The hard, fossilized stone of the original is replaced with plush, pink-sewn felt. There's a softness, a richness to the curves. The breasts and belly are more clearly defined, less phallic, and with a greater sense of stillness and calm. It's like a woman realizing how much more joy she could have experienced late in her pregnancy if she had only been unencumbered by the anxiety of the unknown. And while both versions of Fragile Goddess are said to be based on the Venus of Willendorf, that wonderfully zaftig stone fertility goddess from 25,000 BCE, it's really only the 2002 version that speaks to its heavy, placid femininity. And it feels appropriate that Bourgeois reissued this softer, calmer version that's so much truer to its source at the age of 90. It feels like acceptance. It feels like a reconciliation. It feels hard won. It's a body that has matured as its artist's body has matured. A soul made so much stronger from its lifetime of emptying out and regenerating that it can now replace disquiet with actual quiet. Here, at the end of an evolution, that pillar and our lizard brains before that began. Special thanks to Nick Roberts, Ashley Blymas, Evan Blanche, Hannah Ray Leach, Josh Perlman Hall, and the intrepid museum goers at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. For more information, past episodes, and all the images, head on over to thelonelypalette.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Palette, on Instagram at The Lonely Palette, like us on Facebook, and support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, and you can find more idea-driven podcasts just like this at hubspokeaudio.org. And if this episode got you jonesing for more art that looks like genitals, then you are in luck, my friend, because next week's episode is going to look at the life, art, and many misinterpretations, that's a hint, of Georgia O'Keeffe. I'll see you back here then. 
hub, and spoke. Audio Collective.